the COVID crisis worsens in Northern health. It is so, so hard for us to see a preventable illness now affecting people across the province. What BC is doing to boost capacity at overwhelmed hospitals. Planning for vaccines for kids. Hopefully not as many hiccups as there was for, for the adults. The unresolved challenges to make sure younger children are protected. And a brush with death in the bedroom. There was an explosion that came down and debris all over my face. The space rock that crashed through her roof. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with the COVID-19 pandemic in our province and the increasingly dire situation in Northern Health. We have 2,090 new COVID-19 cases province-wide since Friday. 351 of those cases are in the north. There are 28 new COVID-related deaths to report, including a person in their 40s. 357 people are in hospital. That's down three, but 153 people are in ICU, a jump of 16. We now have just under 5,200 active cases in the province, and 82.6% of eligible British Columbians, 12 and up, are now fully vaccinated. With that rising number of cases in the north comes a growing number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions. <laughs> Let's bring in Keith Baldry uh, in Victoria for more on that. What do the numbers tell us, Keith? Yeah, grim situation, Sophie. We've been focusing on the north for the last week or so because the situation up there is becoming very serious indeed. The ICU numbers continue to explode as do hospitalizations to the point where now more and more people are having to be airlifted to Vancouver Island in particular and also Metro Vancouver uh, Hospital. Here are the latest case numbers in terms of ICUs on the move. There's only 63 ICUs, ICU beds in the entire region alone. 55 ICU patients have now moved elsewhere. 14 on the weekend alone. 42 Two of those are unvaccinated COVID-19 patients. And as I mentioned, the lion's share, 34 ICU patients have been sent to Vancouver Island, which means patients who normally reside in Dawson Creek have been moved hundreds of miles away from their family. Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, using today's briefing in an unprecedented fashion to focus on wealth, one health authority alone, she says she and her team are now very concerned of what they're seeing unfolding in Northern Health. We have been closely monitoring the situation in the North and my public health colleagues and I are very concerned with what we continue to see in many communities across the North. COVID-19 is spreading at a higher than average rate. People are becoming severely ill, even young people, mostly unvaccinated younger people, and hospitals are pushed to the limit across the North. So I'll leave you with a couple of more statistics. They're not very good ones. Of those 28 deaths reported over four days, seven of those were located in Northern Health. So a health authority with just about 6% of the population is racked up 25% of the deaths in a four-day period. Almost 200 people went into hospital. Many people came out, of course, but 198 went in. Almost 50 of those were in Northern Health. Again, almost 25% of the hospitalizations uh, recorded in a health authority with less than 6% of the population. You've got to turn that situation around. All right. Thanks, Keith. No doubt. All right, Health Canada approval is still pending, but we are learning more about the potential plan to vaccinate BC kids aged 5 to 11. As Richard Zussman reports, that mass vaccination effort could be in action as early as next month. Preparing for the shot. We may have that 
important vaccine available to us as early as early November. This is Health Canada's reviewing preliminary data from Pfizer on the effectiveness of vaccinating 340,000 kids between the age of 5 and 11 currently not eligible in BC. We continue to talk with school communities, families and parents to ensure the process will be as seamless as possible for everyone and make sure that our logistics are all in place so that we can provide this vaccine as soon as it's available. The province still grappling with many details on how to administer vaccines for kids. Shots could be given at community centres, schools and maybe even pharmacies, but doctors' offices have been ruled out for now. We're still waiting for details of, of whether the vaccine is going to be uh, fridge-stable. Non-immunized children continue to lead the way in terms of new cases of COVID in BC. In yellow and pink, you can see the cases growing among those not yet eligible for vaccine and are school-aged. Far fewer cases per capita for those 18 to 39. They drove transmission for much of the pandemic. The expectation is all kids 5 to 11 will be eligible for the vaccine at the same time. We're trying to do a broad-based approach across the province to make sure access is there for everybody when the vaccine is available. I hope to see is that this means a very smooth rollout for kids in BC and hopefully not as many hiccups as there was for, for the adults. The province encouraging parents now to register their 5 to 11-year-olds in the provincial system. That will help determine how much vaccine is needed and where. With so much still up in the air, the province not considering adding those 5 to 11 to the province's vaccine card. My first thought is probably not. Um, the intent of the vaccine program, of course, is to look at those situations um, that are discretionary, that mostly adults attend to. But where kids are included is the public mask mandate. Starting now, all children, five and up, are legally required to mask up in indoor public spaces like grocery stores and shopping malls. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. BC's assisted living and long-term care facilities are set to experience even more staffing challenges as today marks the deadline for those workers to have at least one vaccine dose. B.C. Health Minister Adrian Dix says there are still nearly 2,000 staff in long-term care who aren't vaccinated or about 5% of the industry workforce entirely. That number includes many casual staff who are all now subject to termination. We have had some sites where, you know, five, six, seven people uh, were put on unpaid leave today. Uh, and hopefully they will decide to take the vaccine and come back to work. But it certainly makes the staffing shortages that we've experienced uh, for the last 20 months that much worse. Some allowances are being made for workers who have received one shot. They'll be allowed to work if they undergo daily rapid testing. And they're also required to get their second dose within 35 days of their first. Well, the continuing high COVID case numbers could push back the return to full capacity for hockey games, live music and movie theaters. As Madagahi reports, instead of a province-wide relaxing of the rules, health officials now say a more regional approach could be in the cards. With glowing hearts we see the rise. 19 months into this pandemic, we are used to associating the image of empty seats with stopping community COVID transmission. Stop, 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 stop. 
Which is why it's hard to blame medical professionals for their apprehension during conversations about the potential of 18,000 British Columbians gathering under one roof. I would feel a, a bit of trepidation at the very least. But seemingly confident with their COVID vaccination rates and individual public health trends, every single province with an NHL team in Canada is ready to drop the puck in front of a maximum capacity crowd. BC has yet to make that decision. I can speak for a lot of guys in that room that we can't wait. And we're hoping for a full capacity. We're hoping for you know everybody to be able to come um, see us play. On Tuesday, the person in charge of making the potential call to lift arena capacity appeared to hint the delay may be tied to the increased transmission and lower vaccination rates in select parts of the province. Seeing the situation in the north comes to mind. So we will be making a decision about that by the end of this week. Aside from hockey teams, theatres, live music and performing arts venues are also keeping close eye on the gathering restrictions. We were shut down three times and um, to have it just unknown when we could reopen uh, um, actually gave me PTSD. I had to get treatment for PTSD. This is probably one of the hardest decisions, this opening large indoor venues that we've had to make in the recent months. And when that decision is finally made, it may vary by region, depending on vaccination rates and each area's COVID-19 situation as a whole. Emanagahi, Global News. Surrey RCMP are investigating the discovery of skeletal remains that might be human. Surrey municipal workers found the bones this morning while doing routine work on a ditch near 64th Avenue and 152nd Street. Surrey RCMP, forensic investigators and the coroner's service are now investigating. Our investigation is still in the very early stages and being that the remains located are uh, skeletal, it is going to likely take some time to be able to positively identify the person. It is too early in the investigation to be able to determine uh, a cause of death or if criminality did play a factor or not. Those are all things that our investigators and BC Corner Services will work together to try to determine. Sentencing today in a Surrey courtroom for the driver in a 2019 fatal crash that killed a Vancouver Whitecaps prospect. 20-year-old Dilpreet Sandhu pleaded guilty to several charges, including dangerous driving causing death and failing to stop at the scene of a crash that caused death. Andrea McPherson has the sentence and reaction from the victim's family. Brandon was the, the light of the family, you know. It was a difficult day in court for the family of 19-year-old SFU soccer player and Vancouver Whitecaps prospect Brandon Bassey, who was killed in a crash in Newton in May of 2019. After learning the person responsible will spend a total of 21 months behind bars. In these situations, no matter what sentence would have been handed down today, it could have been any range or the higher end or the lower end. It would have made no difference to the family in terms of the loss that we've suffered as a family. Dilpreet Sandhu was 18 years old at the time of the crash. There were six people inside his overloaded Jeep as he was excessively speeding through a residential neighborhood. Sandhu and another passenger left the scene of the crash, but he would later surrender himself to RCMP. The judge uh, felt that his behavior was highly rec reckless uh, in the circumstance and that uh, young people should take this as a lesson uh, that 
these are the kind of consequences that will last for a lifetime. Bad decision is, is going to affect people for the rest of their lives. It's ripped apart the, the Bassey family and our family, and um, there's just no words. Three others ended up in hospital that night, including Sandu's cousin, who was left in a vegetative state, and another with other life-altering injuries. Sandu has also been handed a three-year driving prohibition, which will begin after his release. Our loss as a family is unmeasurable, unexplainable, but at the same time, the loss to the community is just as unmeasurable. Andrea McPherson, Global News. A man is clinging to life in hospital tonight, and police are hoping you can help track down the driver responsible. As Grace Key reports, the hit and run happened this morning near a Vancouver high school. A hit and run collision in South Vancouver has left a 30-year-old man clinging to life with serious head injuries. It happened at the intersection of Fraser Street and 41st Avenue at 6.25 in the morning. The man was crossing 41st Avenue when the driver hit him and sped off heading west. There was some major impact, major contact made um, as our victim is suffering some life-threatening injuries. So we, we, uh, there's no doubt in, our, in the investigators' minds that that person who was driving the vehicle knows exactly what he or she did. The impact was so severe, you can see the man's shoes and hat scattered on the road. Where the cone is placed, that's the point of impact. The man ended up about 60 feet away in the intersection. There is no information about the victim, though empty bottles and a bag full of containers could be seen on the road. As for the suspect vehicle, police believe it's a black SUV or pickup truck with damage to the front passenger side. Just a few blocks away, this home security footage captures a dark-colored pickup truck heading west on 41st Avenue, driving away from the scene. The timestamp shows 6.25 a.m. and there were no vehicles, matching the description minutes before or after. Please come forward. If you were in in this area, if you are also the driver of this vehicle, please call police. We want to speak with you. We want to hear uh, your side of the story as well. Witnesses or anyone with dash cam footage from the area are asked to call Vancouver Police Department's Collision Investigation Unit. Grace Key, Global News. Lots of jobs, not enough bodies. With winter approaching fast, ski hills have an uphill battle finding enough staff to fill the void. Why the shortage is so serious this year. Next on the News Hour. Their reaction was as if I was standing there live and in person. The roving robot keeping seniors connected at long term care homes. Coming up on the News Hour. And reviving a lost art, the Chiam Canoe Builder, who's busier than he's ever been later. Right now, though, if you're planning to hit the slopes this winter, you could be looking at longer lines and fewer services. As with many other sectors, B.C. ski resorts are facing a critical staffing shortage. Krista Dow explains why it's even worse than it is for many other businesses. It is a rare recess here at Premium Mountain Rental in Whistler. Since around the end of August when borders opened, um, it had been really busy. The bike and ski rental shop finally bouncing back after a difficult 2020. For Matthew Hamilton, the challenge now is having enough staff to keep up. It's pretty stressful. Um, As a floor supervisor, I don't really have too many people to supervise, so I'm running around like a headless chicken. It's just a big stress, basically. It puts a lot of strain on everyone that is working. From the ski resort right down to the restaurants, many shops in the village deeply feeling the void left behind by international workers. Most of our 
foreign workers were here on holiday working visas and they went home. Chamber of Commerce CEO Melissa Pache says about 35% of the workforce comes from overseas. With not enough staffing, businesses have had to pivot, closing more often or cutting back hours. In some circumstances, it would be a reduced menu, maybe reduced hours. Um, and in some cases, they're taking uh, positions and moving them from department to department. We are short-staffed, yeah. Um, but we've kind of changed with changing the hours. Resorts like Whistler Blackcomb also heavily rely on international workers. Like others, they too are experiencing a labour shortage. Whistler Blackcomb tells Global News they contend with staffing dynamics every year. And while this year may present unique challenges, they remain focused on attracting and retaining talent. Two or three of my friends have been working, I want to say, 16 days in a row. There is plenty of optimism for the winter season as Canada welcomes back international visitors. Still... More red tape reduction is needed if the industry is to bounce back. We really need to start seeing the holiday working visas come back, uh, the temporary foreign workers come back. Krista Dow, Global News. Coming up, planning for the future of public transit. So I'm proud that it recommends the kinds of big and very bold changes this region needs. A Global News reality check on TransLink's ambitious goals. And Big Bang Theory, what came crashing through the ceiling and how the homeowner was lucky to survive it. Still a busy evening commute along Highway 1 East from Vancouver right through Burnaby and into Coquitlam with major congestion at all the usual merge points like Willingdon and Kensington. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Well, the housing market saw a drop in sales in September compared to 2020. No drop in prices, though. The average price of a detached home continues to rise. The B.C. Real Estate Association says more than 9,100 homes sold last month, a drop of almost 20 percent from the same month a year ago. But the average price for a home is up 14 percent to just over $913,000. Economists say a lack of supply continues to be the biggest issue, particularly in the Fraser Valley, on Vancouver Island, and in the interior. Well, some big changes could be on the way for transit in Metro Vancouver. TransLink's 30-year plan includes a lot more rapid transit and bike lanes. Our Ted Chernecki dug into the report and also found plans for a faster way to get to Seattle. If TransLink has its way 30 years from now, there'll be far fewer of these and a lot more of buses, trains and bicycles, such as the vision in its new 30-year plan unveiled today. Quadrupling our transit network, our rapid transit network, to create 300 kilometers of brand new rapid transit connections over the next 30 years. These 30-year plans are notoriously vague. To put that into perspective, consider this. 36 years ago, there was no SkyTrain at all. Today, there's just under 80 kilometers of track, with another 5.7 under construction under Broadway, and then there's the Langley Line, 16 more kilometers by 2028. So in 43 years, we will have managed to have built just 101.3 kilometers of track, and somehow we're going to add 300 kilometers in the next 30 years. 
In order for transit to be competitive with the car, to be more reliable, you need dedicated space. And TransLink is looking at different technologies and ways of doing that, which is quite interesting. Bike lane expansion is even more ambitious. TransLink currently has 102 kilometers of dedicated bicycle lanes. By 2050, it wants 850. The automobile, even if electric, is going to have to move over because those bike lanes have to come from somewhere. All this while ridership continues to run at 55% of pre-pandemic levels, even though classes have returned and more than 80% of the population is fully vaccinated. Some people may be wondering why we're making these kinds of recommendations while our ridership is still recovering from the pandemic. There has been certainly a mode shift where remote work and remote learning has become part of our day-to-day life. Imagine the Zoom and Skype technology available 10 years from now, let alone 30. Still, TransLink is confident ridership will set record highs in time. I'm confident not only that our riders will return, but that it will grow to new heights. And for the first time, high-speed rail is in a formal plan connecting the lower mainland to Seattle and Portland. There's even mention of possible rail to Pemberton and Chilliwack. But, as usual, no costing and no prioritization. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Coming up, a rude awakening in Golden, B.C. Confused and just adrenaline just rushing through me. The meteorite that crashed through her roof and what she did with it. Plus, a whole new frontier in long-term care. How these iPads on wheels work. Your local dish. The local dish. Taste of the Neighborhood with Kasia Baderka. The inside scoop on the restaurants that make BC unique. Get the local dish on the local dish on Global News. Slow and steady both ways over at the Lionsgate Bridge tonight with just minor congestion on the Cloverleaf off the North Shore while downtown traffic is totally good to go. Need winter tires? No time for appointments? Drop by Mr. Lube and enjoy stay-in-your-car tire service on your schedule. No appointment needed. Mr. Lube, ready when you are. I'm Trish Jewison in the Global Traffic Center. Houses burned as rivers of red-hot lava flowed from La Palma on Tuesday, a day after the eruption prompted a lockdown. On Monday, local emergency services instructed residents in nearby towns to remain indoors and shut their windows to avoid inhaling toxic fumes from a nearby burning cement plant. Torrents of molten rock have destroyed more than 1,000 buildings in the three weeks since the eruption. About 6,000 people have been forced from their homes. A new wildfire is rapidly growing in central California. The Alasal fire broke out near Santa Barbara on Monday, fanned by wind gusts up to 90 kilometers an hour. The flames jumped a major highway, forcing officials to shut it down in both directions. The wildfire has scorched at least 1,500 hectares and is completely uncontained. The blustery conditions forced all aircraft crews assigned to the fire to remain grounded due to unsafe flying conditions. A new development in the case of Gabby Petito, the 22-year-old blogger whose remains were found last month in a Wyoming national park. A coroner has revealed the cause of death. We hereby find the cause and manner of death to be the cause death by strangulation and manner is homicide. 
Petito went missing while on a road trip with her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, who police say is a person of interest in the case and has been missing since mid-September. The coroner says she was killed three to four weeks before her body was found, putting the time of death in late August. He also said she was not pregnant. In health matters tonight, a B.C. healthcare researcher is taking long-term care into what was once the realm of science fiction. As Erin MacArthur reports, she's using robots to help long-term care residents connect with their families. You're back, Tim. Taking seniors' care to a whole new frontier. Lillian Hung and Jim Mann are the co-leads of a study that is putting technology front and center in long-term care homes. These robots are being used as a communication tool for residents. The benefits, easy to see. I was talking to somebody in the lounge and another one in the dining room. Their reaction was as if I was standing there. During the height of the pandemic, residents in long-term care were all but cut off from the outside world. The obvious solution was tablets. And while that partially solved communication issues, it created a whole new set of problems for residents with dementia or mobility issues. Staff members often had to hold the device. It was labor-intensive and inefficient. During the pandemic, we hear families that they get 10 minutes a week. The technology, they couldn't connect, and they don't even get that 10 minutes. Sometimes when they get... They were able to lock on, and the iPad was not facing the residents. And they were, oh yeah. The robot solved that problem. Family members can book a time slot, and then using an app, drive the robot to the bedside of their loved one. When they're done, the robot goes back to its charging station. In a long-term care setting, this kind of technology is ideal, easy to use, and accessible. But think of the possibilities here. They're endless. Staff being pulled in so many different directions. Here's a need or here's a solution to the need. The robots cost about twice that of a high-end iPad. And there are some hurdles to this tech being used on a large scale. Infection control and privacy issues needed to be sorted out. The lab working closely with staff to deal with their concerns. But the residents in the four care homes where these robots live love them when we use the robot we can see you know people their face light up their eyes open big smile a lot of joy to be able to see family the study will continue for three years but early data shows this technology can make a real difference in the lives of seniors aaron MacArthur, global news and tonight rock star treatment for a young vancouver boy who's in for the fight of his life nick is so sweet he's so kind he certainly does. Students and families from about a dozen West or half a dozen rather West Side schools lined the streets this morning to cheer on 12-year-old Nick Cannon as he headed to hospital for his 12th round of chemotherapy. What started as a group of moms trying to find a way to support Nick during his cancer treatments took off with the entire community getting involved today. My biggest wish is for that every kid has this feel that they can do it, because they can, with the support and love of them going into it. And he is so loved. And it's just people having the opportunity to show up. If you give people the opportunity, I believe in the good of the magic of the world, and this is where it comes to. And he is smiling. Oh my God, he is magic. <laughs> Nick will be at BC Children's Hospital for about three weeks for his latest round of chemotherapy and stem cell treatment. And we wish him the best. You got this, Nick.
Looking strong as he heads in there. That's wonderful. Still ahead, the champion canoe builder of the Chiam Nation. Why his designs are in such high demand up and down the Fraser River. But first, how this woman from Golden, B.C. ended up in bed with a rock from space. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Some more stunning video of orcas visiting the waters surrounding Metro Vancouver. The images were recorded by documentary filmmakers Lakin Wainwright at around noon on Saturday at the government dock in Horseshoe Bay. Visitors, boaters, and people waiting for a ferry all lucky enough to get this this close to a pair of orcas that swam up between the marina, the ferry terminal, and the beach. Over the weekend, there were several more sightings of the animals in Burrard Inlet and Coal Harbor. Look at that, it swims wow. right below them. Amazing. That is close. Well, the northern lights made a rare appearance over the lower mainland's night sky. A geomagnetic storm made the lights, also known as Aurora Borealis, visible across the world from the UK to parts of Washington. And right here in BC, residents were treated to the spectacular show. This video taken from English Bay. These photos also from the Vancouver area. Stunning. Good thing it was clear. I missed it. But we have pictures. So that's right. Good. That's why we're here. And that's why Christy's here to talk a little bit more about uh, conditions out there tonight. Christy? Yeah, so uh, you can see the sky behind me. It looks purple, and I'm not sure why that is. If you're at home and you have a, maybe a reason why, let me know. Uh, we don't have the ability to see the Aurora Borealis tonight because of the cloud cover, but also I checked in with the University of Alberta that tracks the geomagnetic activity. There's only about a 29% of us seeing that display, so we were so lucky that we had the clear skies last night. Here's a quick look at a few more photos. Uh, we have the one from Cole Harbor from Brianna. Just stunning shots and another one here uh, showing, come on, I might need a chance, oh there we go, Bushi Lake, uh, thank you to Chris for that one, I love it with the sky so lit up, and look at this ominous looking from Rhonda in the canoe lake area, or the canoe area, and this one from Green Lake from Warren Low. so thank you to everyone who shares the photos, because yes, I too was asleep, uh, but uh, wishing that I could have seen it in real life, but nice to see those photos. Tonight, we do have a chance of showers, I mean it's certainly raining right now, but a chance of showers into tomorrow morning, we are expecting the possibility of snow even in the valley bottoms in areas like uh, Nelson, uh, Castlegar, maybe into in Merritt as well. It would just be a wet snow and it would transition to rain pretty quickly, but definitely that uh, freezing level has dropped. You felt the, the cold air probably today, even across Metro Vancouver. Later tomorrow, things start to clear out, but we've got another system that's on deck. So tomorrow will be mainly cloudy, but mainly dry, but we won't be getting much of a break because there will be right back into periods of rain by tomorrow night and certainly into our Thursday not a soaker, but uh, some rainfall, certainly. Uh, here's a look at your forecast for tomorrow with the bulk of the moisture across the north and central coast, inland region sunshine and breaks of blue sky through the Okanagan Valley. But you can see that flake in the Castlegar region. So that was just through the early morning hours. Lots of cloud cover for the south coast tomorrow, but at least mostly dry except parts of Vancouver Island. And then it looks like we'll be back to uh, periods of rain as we head into our Thursday, but not quite like where we're seeing today, just a few showers more so. Uh, 
tonight's central windows weather window is from the Fort St. John area. I picked this one because we had so many photos and thank you to everyone who shares them. But this one really I thought was stunning. It's one of the areas where you get that really clear, crisp uh, look at the Aurora and Jane captured it. It just looks huge over top of her neighborhood. So thanks, Jane, for sharing that. Pretty incredible. Giant green curtain is what it looks mm -hmm. like. Very cool. Thank you. Well, a BC woman says she is still in shock after an out-of-this-world close encounter. As Kylie Stanton reports, the whole thing happened in her bedroom. I was in this bedroom right here. Call it luck. Call it chance. It came through the roof right up in there. But there are some things that just can't be explained. I think I'm just in wonder. Yeah, you know, every time I go into the bedroom, I go, oh my goodness, that could have hit me. On the night of October 4th, Ruth Hamilton had been asleep for hours when she awoke to the sound of her dog barking. Ready? Then, moments later, this came hurtling into her bedroom. It sounded like an explosion happening. Jumped out of bed, ran over and turned on the light and saw a hole in my roof. The 66-year-old immediately called 911. It was only then she discovered what had happened. Flipped back the, the top pillow and there was the rock. A grey charcoal chunk of rock the size of a softball came tearing through Hamilton's roof, landing in between her pillows just centimeters from where her head had been only seconds earlier. Just thinking of that just makes my heart race. RCMP was sent to investigate, initially suspecting the rock was debris from a construction site nearby. But a quick phone call confirmed there had not been any blasting that night. However, workers on site did report seeing a meteorite exploding before it disappeared. And on social media, even further proof. Images have surfaced, captioned, the huge fireball last night at Lake Louise. What a spectacular shot. It was well over a kilogram, so I would say that big, yeah. Hamilton has reported the find to a team of experts at Western University, who have since confirmed the rock is in fact from space, likely a part of the solar system's astro belt. It went through tin, asphalt shingles, plywood and then uh, the drywall. While Hamilton was shaken up, she wasn't hurt. And now she has a story to tell that's truly out of this world. I'm just thankful to be alive and yeah, be here talking to you and my family. Kylie Stanton, Global News. And she's smiling about it. Yeah. <laughs> she seems pretty calm. She sure does after living through that. Absolutely amazing. Chucking, aliens chucking rocks. That's right, there. aliens chucking rocks. I'd be smiling too <laughs> if I was still upright after that happened. A lot of uh, hockey fans are smiling. Well, the NHL regular season has begun. There are two games tonight, including Seattle later on down in Vegas. Uh, the Canucks play tomorrow. And today the Canucks signed Alex Chason. Now, we've talked a lot about him. He's been signed mainly because of his work on the power play. He's the guy who has no fear standing in front of the net, which is not an easy job. There's also a courage part to it that um, people on the outside don't understand. Here's an example of that. Chason will be part of the Canucks' first power play unit tomorrow when they start in Edmonton. Also tonight, going with the flow. A GM builder tries to keep up with demand for his traditional racing canoes.
All right, Squires back to look at sports on NHL season beginning eve. For, for the Canucks, yes, for yes. the Canucks. Uh, actually, most teams. It needs um, a better name than that, though. It's it's a it was a little clunky. Was it a little clunky? Let's get the promotions people on that. <laughs> uh, the Canucks are uh, in Edmonton getting ready for game one of a full 82-game season. It'll be tomorrow against the Oilers, and they will have former Oiler Alex Chase on with them. Now, he wasn't on the Canucks' original 23-man roster yesterday because he had not signed a contract yet, but... That did happen today. He was too good on the power play in the preseason to leave him off the roster. And with more on that and other opening night eve news, here's Jay. It's opening day in the National Hockey League, and today at Rogers Arena, the Vancouver Canucks held their final practice before embarking on their opening six-game road trip to begin the 2021-22 NHL season. The Canucks are in Edmonton tomorrow, and the good news is it looks like Brock Besser is not only going to join the Canucks on this road trip, Brock Besser might play. Where's he at? First of all, he did skate yesterday, and he did skate today, so he'll be on the trip with us. Not ruling him out tomorrow. On Monday evening, the Vancouver Canucks finalized their 23-man roster, and Zach McEwen's name was on it. Except for today, they put him on waivers for the purpose of sending him down to the Abbotsford Canucks of the American Hockey League. The other roster move today, and it was a big one, was signing Alex Chase onto a one-year contract worth $750,000. It's a bargain deal for the Vancouver Canucks, who've been using Chase on in a top-six role. The 31-year-old has played 564 NHL games, 101 goals, and 101 assists, and his big ad is in front of the net, especially on the power play. Well, you got to be willing to get hit by pucks. They're almost... Uh... You know, kind of like goaltenders a little bit, and you have to have that mindset where you're willing to pay the price to, you know, to take a puck off a leg sometimes, or you know, get in the dirty areas, or get cross-checked, and and again, you know, just be on the perimeter and be right in the fight. So, it takes a special player, and and he's definitely one of those. Well, it's an art. People don't. Uh, you can say it all day long. Go to the net, stand in front of the net. There's timing to it. There's there's also a courage part to it that. Um, People on the outside don't understand the courage that it takes to stand there when guys are taking one-timers and that. And there's not a lot of guys that are good at it in the league, and, and he's one of them. So the Canucks are in Edmonton tomorrow night. Then it's Philadelphia and Detroit on Friday and Saturday before heading off to Buffalo, Chicago, and Seattle before returning home October 26th when they begin a seven-game homestand. From Rogers Arena with your ringside report, Jay Janor, Global Sports. Okay, you just heard Jay mention that six-game road trip for the Canucks to start the season. Now, a lot of times in the past, Canuck GMs, coaches, and players would have complained about starting the season on such a long road trip because this one goes all the way out east and then all the way back to Seattle. But with all the new players the Canucks have, they actually think the schedule makers have done them a favor with this early road trip. I mean, I'd love to get back on the road and do normal things and go to dinner and, you know have a beer with your teammates out and learn, you know, get to know them. I guess I think it's a perfect way to start the season. It's going to be a great challenge for our team. Um, you know, a lot of games and uh, a lot of cities coming up. So, um, you know, we're super excited to go back and travel and cross the border again and do the whole thing. So, I've, and, you know, I think it's going to be a really fun trip for us, and I think it's coming at a perfect time. Well, for the second time they, uh, in a row, third time in their team history, the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning have raised the Stanley Cup banner, but that's not very Stanley Cup-like. A giveaway by Vasilevsky, and the first goal of the season, Langley's Danton Heinen scoring for Pittsburgh. And then Brian Boyle, who, like Alex Chason, made the Penguins on a tryout. He scores. Penguins don't have Crosby or 
Malkin or Gensel in this game, but they're up 2-0 in the third period. Well, here's a good trivia question. Who was the last quarterback to start for the Seattle Seahawks before Russell Wilson took over the job as a rookie in 2012? The answer is Tavares Jackson, who wore number seven. The same number Geno Smith will wear when he starts for Seattle this Sunday against Pittsburgh. Smith, of course, used to be a starter with the Jets earlier in his career. That didn't work out so well. Now he has to come through for Seattle, although the Seahawks defense has to help as well. He needs to come through so Seattle's playoff chances won't be gone by the time Russell Wilson returns from his finger injury really sharp with calls and checks and all that kind of stuff. Uh, he's a really good athlete. He's got a tremendous throwing arm. He's got a great arm. He can throw the ball a mile. He can throw the ball hard on the move in bowling, go, going in both directions. I mean, he throws the ball impeccably well. I mean, he's got great throwing mechanics and all of that. And, and so you know, he can make all the throws. So tomorrow night, right there at BMO Field in Toronto, Canada and Panama in another World Cup qualifying game. Alfonso Davies will lead the Canadians, who haven't lost yet. It's game six of a 14-game tournament where the top three of eight automatically qualify for next year's World Cup. The key to these tournaments is win your home games. And if they win this home game, Canada will be in the top three. We are currently fourth. Panama is third. Well, the Houston Astros, a lot of people don't like them because, of course, They kind of won the World Series, you know, with a bit of cheating a few years ago. But this franchise does know how to win in the playoffs. They won today against the White Sox. They've now made the uh, ALCS five years in a row. And they will play the Boston Red Sox for the right to go to the World Series. Trying to be legit. (laughs) Yes, no more more garbage can banging. Thank you very much. That's right. Thanks, Squire. Thank you, Squire. Up next to BC Men, bringing back canoe culture, one canoe at a time. This is BC with Jay Durant, brought to you in part by Fortis BC, BC's energy solutions provider. BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. Well, hope may not be the first place you think of when it comes to canoeing, but Rick Quip is getting a big following for his Chiam canoes. He is quickly getting a reputation for building winners. And as Jay Durant tells us, he's also helping restore a proud paddling heritage. It's another busy day in the shop behind Rick Quip's house in Hope. It was just a few years ago when he got serious about building racing canoes. My goal was to, to bring it back to, to my reserve, bring back the canoe races, the, the canoe culture. And now the phone has been ringing off the hook with orders from First Nation racing clubs throughout the Fraser Valley. So this one's only an hour away, maybe two hours away from being complete. It's been tough to keep up with demand. The crew has another 12 canoes to make after these are finished. Singles. Doubles, six mans, 11 mans, ocean canoes. Quip started this to promote a healthy lifestyle for younger generations, and it's helped bring the Chiam community together. Life, our culture, history, family, everything, because you, as soon as you have one, it's, you get that, that bond. 
on, son, come on, finish! And these are champion canoes. Rick's nephew, Jonathan, pressed one practically every race he entered this year. Attaboy, Junior, keep pulling, son, finish! Rick's quick to point out that it's all the training he does, but there seems to be something special in the design of his cedar strip canoes. One elder told me, look at the belly of a fish and check, you know, study the fish. Another order ready to go. They'll give it a test run before it goes to the new owner. Go and give it a dunk here soon. Uh, Christen it to the water. And then back to the shop to try and catch up. He never thought it'd be this busy. Rick's goal has grown into something so much more. My buddy, he was a, a single canoe champion for 13 years. And he keeps saying, don't give up. Even if you got one person with you, don't give up because you're keeping it alive and you're bringing it home. Jay Durant, Global News. That's awesome, Rick. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC that people need to know about, email your ideas to Jay. This is BC at globalnews.ca. Lots of good ideas coming in. Mm -hmm. That one especially. All right, uh, let's check in with Christy and see what uh, we're getting overnight. Mm -hmm. Notice some frost on the uh, garage roof last night. Oh, yeah, it was a cold one last night. It won't be as cold tonight. Uh, we are seeing a rainfall right now, certainly, and we will continue to overnight, but it will ease through the morning hours. So just a slight chance earlier in the day, but it should be mainly cloudy and mainly dry throughout the day. So a little bit of a drying trend. But then we're back to periods of rain, it looks like, for Thursday. Not a soaker, but certainly on and off wet weather. All right, thanks very much, Christy. And thank you all for watching. Have a great night. Good night, all.